The year was 2007. <clears throat> I had just, been the, just uh, been the senior pastor of Calvary Church for about a year at that point. <clears throat> and I went away on my first study break. It was a chance to hear from the Lord and to begin to pray and ask the Lord what it is that he was wanting for the church. And while I was away on that very first study break, I felt God very clearly impress upon my heart that we as a congregation, along with a coalition of other churches from Grand Rapids, were supposed to build a house for a young couple named Josh and Shelley Buck. Now, I didn't know Josh and Shelley Buck personally, but I was familiar with their story. Uh, three of Shelley's aunts are a part of Calvary Church and kind of had been kept up to date with them. I did know uh, through them that Josh was a pastor here at a church in town not connected with Calvary in any way. And on the first day he was supposed to start his new job at that church, I think he was going to be the worship pastor if I remember right. On that first day he was supposed to begin that job, uh, their baby daughter Ava was killed uh, in an accident in their home. This horrible, terrible tragedy sent this family into a tailspin. We, of course, hearing the news, uh, it was in the newspaper, praying for them, uh, desperately sad for them. Well, after a year went by after uh, their baby Ava had died, a friend gave to Josh and Shelley a trip, a trip away to try to begin to sort of piece their life back together after a year, <clears throat> to try to begin some sort of sense of, uh, uh, of rest. Well, on that trip, in a freak accident, Josh broke his neck while swimming. He was paralyzed, and they were coming back home to Grand Rapids to a house that was not handicap accessible with no financial resources to make it so. Well, having heard their story and been praying with them uh, and for them, but still not having ever met them personally, I remember sort of hearing through the grapevine that they had applied to Oprah and to Extreme Home Makeover, hoping that the, just the incredible tragedy of their story would elicit sympathy from these secular sources and might be able to somehow provide housing for them. Well, on the study break, while I was just simply praying and asking the Lord, what are we supposed to be doing as a church? I remember God very clearly impressing upon my heart, it's not Oprah's job to build them a house. It's the church's job. And I remember being excited that God was so clear about that, but also very scared. Well, what does that mean? This is my very first year of doing this. I'm, I'm, I don't have any idea what I'm doing. I'm supposed to go back to the elders and say, we're supposed to do this and to get together a group of churches. How do you do that? How do you even find the money for a project like that? How do you even make that happen? Well, I remember coming home and sharing with the elders and the deacons and saying, look, I don't know what to do with this, but I, I sense we're supposed to do something with this. And to their credit, the elders and the deacons of this church went away and they prayed about it and they asked the Lord and God impressed upon their hearts that we were supposed to indeed build Josh and Shelley Buck a house. And I'm incredibly proud to say that they agreed to do this having no idea how much it was going to cost, where the money was going to come from, whether any other churches were going to sign on to do this with us or not, and how the details of all this was going to work out, they just simply said, look, it's our job to obey. And we feel like God's calling us to do this. And so we agreed together as a church to do it. Well, God was incredibly gracious, and he raised the money uh, from this congregation and from others in the city 
to be able to build them a house. And at the end of 2008, uh, the house was built. And I remember many of you not only participating in this project, but coming to the dedication of the house and being able to be there uh, as we prayed and thanked God for creating this house, this amazing thing that he had done. It was really, it was a great project for us as a church. Uh, it was a great project to be able to see God express his love to Josh and Shelley. Well, that was 2008. I had one more meeting with uh, Josh, probably a month or so after that, and that was the last I'd heard of them. The meeting that I had with Josh about a month after the house was dedicated was not a positive meeting. It was a difficult meeting. I hadn't heard anything more about them. I didn't know uh, what they were up to. I didn't know whether they were walking with the Lord or what they were doing. I just didn't, I hadn't heard anything about their story. This past December, I had a chance to hear Josh and Shelley's story of what God has been up to in their life since we last saw them back in 2008. And as I listened to the story, it was an amazing story of God's grace and power. And as I sat there listening, I thought, this is something the whole church needs to hear. So we've invited Josh and Shelley to come this morning and in a briefer form than what I got to share with you the story of what God's been doing in their life uh, since the time when we last saw them. Welcome. We are glad you guys are here. Hey, you guys. Uh, we are just thrilled to be here this morning and uh, have a, a great story of redemption and a victory for you guys, but um, starts out kind of ugly, and so um, that's what we're going to unfold for you. The gift of a house is something that you don't really know how to say thank you for. It's like, um, you know, somebody gives you a $10 bill, and like, I'd be psyched. I'd be like, thanks. Like, I'm going to get coffee. But if somebody gives you a house, there really wasn't, I remember we threw like a dinner, like so that we could at least say thank you to a few people. Like we didn't, we, it, it's so, it's so huge. We didn't even know how to say thank you. And something that we came to realize was through this is that we were hurting so much emotionally at this time. We didn't even know our, like in our hearts, how to be thankful. It was, it was just, we were living in such um, devastation, honestly, at this point in our life. Um, we were trying to learn how to continue to process losing our daughter um, through a horrible accident where there were just a lot of difficult images that we had to deal with um, continually. Um, and then the same thing happened when Josh broke his neck. Um, it was emotionally just so damaging. And I felt like I kept going back to the Lord and saying, Lord, I trust you. Lord, I trust you. But I didn't know what that looked like, and I didn't know how to do it. Um, and after Josh broke his neck, I was so completely overwhelmed um, with what was expected of me. We were, have, uh, we, at the time, we had a five-year-old with some pretty significant special needs that needs 24-hour care. I now have a husband who, honestly, at this time, he really needed 24-hour care. Um, I'm still processing losing my, our daughter, 
Um, and uh, and Josh was you, trying. You were pregnant. I was pregnant with our with our youngest. Yes, um, he was born two and a half weeks after Josh got out of the hospital. Um, trying to find housing for us to live in. Um, I honestly, I did not know how to give anything else emotionally. I felt like I was, I was dry. Like he might need something emotionally, I didn't have it to give. And at that point I was like, look, how much more can you expect of me? I'm not sure I even felt too bad about the fact that I didn't have anything left to give. Mm -hmm. And so I remember a really specific uh, conversation that Shelly and I had while I was in rehab, uh, probably while we were, you know, considering the, the project for the house. And I just didn't know what it meant to be a dad anymore. You know, I couldn't throw a baseball back and forth with my boys and go camping or go fishing or, you know, do all the stuff that I thought, you know, being a dad would always be. And I didn't know what it meant to be a husband. I couldn't, you know, do the honeydew list anymore. And I couldn't do the things around the home that I could. And I didn't know what it meant to be a man. Um, just my identity in being a man, just kind of a, you know, trying to be a burly guy, coming up to the other boys and, you know, give them a big bear hug. Ah, you're doing, you know, and that just wasn't really even possible for me anymore. And so I asked Shelly, I said, Shell, I just, I need you to help me emotionally right now. Like, I just, I'm, I'm so, you know, torn and so confused. I just need your help emotionally. And as we were sitting in the, in the car, she said, Honey, you know I love you, but I just don't have anything to give you emotionally right now at all. I just, I'm emotionally tapped. And if you need emotional support, I just don't have it to give. And I just remember like that just cutting so deep at that point. And me not even being able to process all that she was already doing emotionally for our kids and for herself and filling out just reams of paperwork every night. And so um, we have a couple of family friends that would come up throughout the week and um, one of Shelly's close friends would come up every Thursday night and she came up one Thursday and she said to me, she said, Josh, I can't do a whole lot for you guys right now, but I can be here for you emotionally. And I remember that at that point, that was just, that was a life raft and I just jumped in wholeheartedly and um, really over the course of the next couple months just began having a full-fledged affair with his, one of Shelly's friends. And that just continued to last from then uh, for about a year and a half. So that's right, right up through the house construction project and um, right into after we moved in to the house. And I remember at that time you know, feeling sick and wanting to know be out of this but at the same time like wanting to indulge emotionally and to, you know to help my help myself um, so shortly shortly after we moved into the house um, Shelly just started getting you know these signals started picking up on things and she started really kind of coming at me with a bunch of questions and the whole thing whole thing came out and so right away Shelly was like well you're not living here anymore you need to move. And so um, I moved into the Radisson up on Ann Street. And at that point, I had, uh, I had nurses coming in in the morning to help me get out of bed and help get me ready for the day. So they just began doing that at the Radisson. And 
I remember there was one day where a, uh, a nurse didn't show up. So it was about one o'clock in the afternoon and I was not out of bed yet. And I remember I just, you know, began to cry and thinking, wow, look at, look at how far I've come that I don't live at home anymore. I don't live with my family and I can't even get out of bed. I'm just a broken man with a broken body and this is the bottom. So, um, man, the next day I called a, a really trusted uh, friend named Ralph Bainham, a pastor from Spring Lake. And he came out um, to the hotel and he sat there and I relayed to him basically every, every bad thing I could think of that I'd ever done all the way back to junior high even. And uh, I started unloading on him. And so he was listening and listening. And so finally I got to the end. And he um, just started kind of praying with me a little bit and quoting some verses to me. But just this well of emotion for the sin that I had been living in for that past year and a half just started to rise in me. And I just remember all of a sudden uh, breaking and just starting to heave and to sob. And I remember saying the words, you know, does Jesus forgive me? I knew the answer to that, but I wanted to feel the answer to that. And so he began just praying over me in the spirit and with scripture. And um, I just remember this lightness and this forgiveness and this you know, cleanliness coming over me that I'd only really heard about before, even though I'd been a Christian my whole life. Um, just to live in that sort of freedom was, was incredible. And so I remember thinking, I'm never going to live outside of this freedom and this transparency ever again. And so I decided in that moment, you know what? I'm not desperate to be back with Shelly. I want it with my whole heart, but if we are never back together again, and even if I have to end up living in a nursing home at age 35, I'm going to bring light to that nursing home. And I'm going to bring Christ's spirit to wherever I go. So I think at that point, Shelly started to see something different in me. And it wasn't just desperation to be back together, but it was, you know, a different, a different man than she had experienced in a couple years. Um, when I was in the, uh, in the hotel, I, I just knew I had just this, you know, deep feeling of guilt over what you guys had done for us and you know just how I had not stewarded that and appreciated that in the way that I should have and so I knew right away that I couldn't let you guys or or Jim hear this you know from someone else and so I called Jim and I told him what had happened and he was on the phone very quiet and he was just like well do you want me to come down and I was like yeah why don't you come down so we can talk so about an hour later, there's a loud knock at the door, and uh, Jim busts into the room with all the fury of a congregation behind him, looking like he's going to kick me in the chest and knock me out of my chair. And I, I was very understanding of that. I would have that. let him. Yes. <laughs> Go for it. And um, I was obviously very understanding of why he felt like this, and just kind of let him know where I was at, and he was just like, okay. And um, he left, and so he didn't hear, you know, from us for, for a few years. Um, go ahead and just say, just briefly, I guess, kind of where you were at. I didn't understand, and it, 
for the first year and a half after Josh's accident why he was so broken. I thought it was his body that was broken that whole time. And yes, his body was broken, but that's not what was wrong. It was his heart. And I did not know that. I had no idea. I felt like I was the one that had to carry our family spiritually because I knew he wasn't able to be the spiritual leader that he was called to be. But I didn't know why. And about a month, a month and a half after this came out, he stepped up in a way that I'd never seen him actually truly step up in our marriage. And at this point, I wasn't even sure we were going to stay together. Um, but having the... Um, the forgiveness that comes from only from God um, was absolutely mind-blowing to me. It didn't matter if I forgived him. I re like if I forgave him, God forgave him. And God forgave me time and time again. And it was, it, it was, it was such clarity. I knew that God was asking me to stay. I knew that the Bible, in a lot of places, like, I could do, I could leave. I called it my get-out-of-jail-free card because I was so incredibly stressed. And I thought, that's one less thing on my, on my to-do list. And, and you, were, you were weighed down by a guy that wasn't stepping up in every way, even to help take care of himself, too. Exactly, yes. It was just, it was, I was, it was very troubling. But we saw God work and redeem Josh and our marriage in ways that I would never have even dreamed possible. And um, at that point, I honestly, this, I, this is not, I wasn't planning on saying this, um, uh -oh. but as, as you're talking. <laughs> it's always a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> no, you go ahead, you tell them. <laughs> no. Um, I had asked God to give me a word. Like, God, I need, I need to hear from you. I need to know what I'm supposed to do. And I just kept going back to the, you know what I mean, the scripture that said I didn't have to stay married um, because of his infidelity. I knew if I were being truthful with myself, that's not what God was saying. And um, that was not what he was asking of me. And at that point, about six or seven weeks after, um, after his, after I found out everything, I came across a word in Hebrew that I'd never heard before. I was just starting to learn how to even study that way. It was the first time we'd gone to a different church. And he talked about God um, in the Old Testament being called Goel. Um, it's on my ring. I took off my other ring that I wore for the first 10 years of our marriage. And Not the wedding ring. But, uh, no, I still have the wedding ring. <laughs> but it says Goel, and it means my rescuer. Because we were rescued time and time again. We were rescued after our daughter's death when he came and met us in the pit and after Josh's accident. And then how we were so emotionally... I mean, we obviously, we still fight. I still want to tear him apart sometimes. <laughs> but I love him. And God has been growing in us a marriage that was intended from the beginning. So Ephesians 1, 13 to 14 says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. 
First of all, God does everything to the praise of his glory. But when, when I believed, I was marked with him, uh, marked in him with a seal. And so even, even though I was, I was hurting Christ's heart, I was sinning against God, God didn't leave me. And this, this seal, his promised Holy Spirit, just marked me and stuck with me throughout this whole thing. And so it got to the point where about a year after we'd gotten back together, I decided, and we decided that we wanted to be involved in some sort of a um, using of, you know, my gifts. And so I started doing something online called Real Time Church that I started. And that was something that would meet needs kind of nationwide. If there was resource over here, need over here, we would work at connecting those things together. And so Crossroads Bible Church here in town that you guys helped start in 2002, um, they got in touch with me and they were like, you know what, we want you to be on staff and do that same thing for our church. And so um, I, I actually called Jim over the second time, so he didn't know what was going on with us. Called him the second time this past December, and we started relaying to him this whole story. And so we got to the part where Shelly and I, you know, really started walking together and walking with the Lord again. And his eyes started to sparkle and he started to get excited. And they got a little wider and my eyes got a little wider. Then I got to the part where I was talking about real-time church. And he got a little more excited and I got a little more excited. And got to the point where I got on staff at Crossroads and I started explaining to him my job. And my job is, is the same thing. If somebody at our church um, has a really leaky roof... I get to find discount materials and find workers that can do it and then help coordinate the project to get a new roof on their house. And when somebody needs um, a new car, we try to help them find a new car. If somebody's having you know, any sort of difficulty, we try to meet that need. So it's just amazing that in God's creativity, the generosity that you showed to us, I now get to help show to others. Cool. And so I got to that so part cool. of the story. I know we started getting really fired up. And so then I got to the, this final part, which is this next chapter of our, of our lives. And that is that um, someone invited us to speak at a marriage retreat this past September. I thought that was really funny. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we're like, do you wait, know? Wait, wait, wait. Do you know us? Do you know you where we've been? You don't ask us to speak at marriage. Do you know where we've been? And they're like, yeah, and that's exactly why we want you guys here is that you're, you're real and you're open about your brokenness, but you're open about God's victory. So when we did that marriage retreat, it was just like, wow, this is what we're supposed to be doing. And just our chemistry was fun and the weekend was fun. And so out of that, we, uh, we started filing paperwork for a nonprofit um, to, to do a, a marriage ministry. It's uh, Josh and Shelley Buck um, Family Ministries. You can see the website up there on the screen. And so I got to that part of the story with Jim, and we were both like, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, well, you've got to share this. And we're like, we would love to. And so that's just, that brings us to today and uh, why we're here. And so this is what we're doing. I'm still on, on staff at Crossroads, but we're still just plunging headlong into this. So, man, thank you guys so much for letting us be here this morning. And praise God for redemption, too. I forgot to say it last service, so I'm not going to forget and say it right now. They're actually going to be down by the cafe 
if you want to go down there and talk to them, if you want to uh, find out more about the ministry that they're doing. But the reason why, as I sat there and I listened to that story, I thought, this is it. This is God's grace. This is what grace looks like. And so this morning, what I want to do is I just want to connect their story to a passage of Scripture that we have been looking at all year long in 1 Peter 5. And so you can turn there. You may know it by heart because we say it every week at the end of our services. It's 1 Peter 5, verses 10 and 11. If you want to look at it in your Scriptures, it's page 983 in the Church Bibles. Josh and Shelley Buck's story is a story of God's amazing grace, God's incredible grace. 1 Peter 5 tells us, uh, actually, why don't we read this together? Would you read this aloud with me? And the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. If I was going to take this benediction and restate it in a way that might help unlock the truth that's there, this is the way that I would restate it. God is taking each and every one of us who are believers in Jesus on a journey through life. That journey will, by definition, involve suffering and difficulty, but God's grace and power will lead us safely through. That essentially what that benediction is saying is that God is in control, and like Josh said up here, that when we become believers, we are marked by his Holy Spirit, and the promise, the absolute thing that God has sworn to us is that he will lead us to his eternal glory, but the amazing thing about it is the way he leads us is with grace. You see, the last meeting I said I had with Josh was in that hotel room. And in that hotel room, I'm hearing him tell me this story about an affair that he's had and that he's living not in the house that God had us build him. And I'm sitting there thinking, you have got to be kidding me. You have got to be kidding me. Like this cost us a lot financially from a stress, from a time point of view. We went and did this and I walked out of there and I didn't know how to process this. And I remember over time, over five years, not hearing from them at all having no idea if they were still married, having no idea if they were walking with the Lord and being frustrated about this. And I remember God saying to me at those times of frustration, look, you did this because I told you to. You don't have the bigger picture. You don't know what's going on. It's your job simply to obey. And so I remember thinking, okay, Lord, it was your house anyway. We did this for you. And I'm telling you, when I sat there this past December and listened to this story, the only thing I could think of is, isn't God amazing? Amen. The idea that God is the God of all grace is, is they've been through some incredible suffering. Some of it's been the righteous sufferer. Some of it's been suffering for unrighteousness' sake. But in the middle of them, it's stunning to me that God had us and other churches build them a house while they were still in the middle of sin. Do you understand that? That this house was built for them as a gift of God's grace in the middle of adultery. In the middle of a wife being un unemotionally available for her husband and a husband making wrong choices. In the middle of a bad situation, 
God showed up not with condemnation, not with anger, but with grace. And I think, isn't he amazing that God would do that? And it's a reminder of that verse that says, God demonstrated his love for us while we were yet sinners, meaning while we were engaged in sinful behavior that angered him, he sent his son to die for us. And I realize their story is this benediction. It's this passage that all of us are on a journey through life. And that by definition, that journey involves suffering. Some of it's because of our own sinful choices. And some of it is because of the sinful choices or the fact that we live in a fallen world. But through it all, God has sworn by his own character that he will bring us safely through, make us strong, firm, and steadfast. And the eye-opening thing for me from their story is the way he does it is by grace. Is that he shows up to us in the middle of things that we're doing, in the middle of the mess, and he gives us kindness and love. God decided to give them a house in the middle of a time they should not have been, probably no human would have signed up to do it. They would have said, well, get your marriage, fix it. That's not how God works. God showed up and said, look, I have sworn that I'm going to bring Josh and Sally safely to my eternal home as transformed believers in Jesus. In order to do that, I've got to rescue them from the death of their daughter. I've got to rescue them from the, the loss of, of mobility through this accident. I've got to rescue them from the loss of love in their relationship. And the way he does it is with grace. And that's what our benediction says, is that grace, God uses his grace to lead us that the way God has us move forward is by giving us kindness when we don't deserve it in the midst of his situation and that house that was just a part of a bigger thing God was doing and it's amazing to me God had already sent into motion the wheels of their rescue before they were ready for it you might be able to say well somebody who's been through the horrific loss of a child and loss of uh, their ability might deserve a house but then when you hear the real story of the sin that was there too, then you realize, no, 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 it's grace. From beginning to end, this is what God does. And at the end, when I heard that, when I heard their story, I didn't think, well, good thing we bought, built them a house. What I thought was, isn't God amazing? He does stuff we would never do. His grace is extravagant. It's beyond anything we can imagine. It is so far above anything that we deserve. And that he's got the whole thing planned out. That this house he told us to build was all part of a master plan where he was going to rescue them and not condemn them. Where he was going to show up and bless them and not punish them. That he came in love and not anger. And what 1 Peter 5 says, this is how he deals with us. This is how God interacts with us. And the story of Josh and Shelley is not just their story, it's our story. And I don't know where you are this morning, I don't know what, the, what you're in the middle of, there could be suffering, there could be difficulty, but the claim of 1 Peter 5, which is absolutely true, is that God will bring you safely through it using grace and kindness and power. And so are you here this morning and are you, have you lost a job? Do you have an unfaithful spouse? Have you lost a loved one? Are you enmeshed in sin? Wherever you are in your journey in life, if you're a believer in Jesus, 
He's going to lead you safely through it, not using condemnation or anger or hatred or guilt, but love and grace and kindness. And if you simply follow the carrots he puts out, he'll lead you safely out. I think of Kelly who shared her testimony just a few weeks ago about how Satan continued to, to help hold her captive through the untold secrets about the abortion that she had had and how God showed up in his grace and led her through that. I think of Dwight, who I'd been praying with, who had been out of work, who God had led through his grace to a new job and a new situation in the middle of discouragement and anxiety. God showed up not with condemnation, not with judgment, with, but with grace. I think of Kirk. I think of Aaron. I think of others that I've just been able to watch how God has shown up in the midst of difficulty and in suffering, not with anger, not with condemnation, not with rejection, not with guilt, but with love. With love to simply say, I can't believe this. I, I can't believe how much God is loving me in the midst. That's what he does. He loves us through these things. And we get out on the other side and we look back and we go, surely he is the God of all grace. Now, not only does he do this for us individually, he does this for us as a church collectively. And here I want to talk a few minutes about the building project that we have been thinking about. And I want to tell you just a little bit of the story in relation to this because it's a story about how God's grace and power has been leading us as a congregation on this journey. 14 years ago, there were plans drawn up to expand the sanctuary and add about 400 seats and redo, uh, add a, a meeting area out front there and redo the youth space. Those plans were drawn up. They were ready to go. A committee was put together to raise the money for it. And at that point, Ed Dobson, who was the senior pastor of the church at the time, was diagnosed with ALS, and all the plans were shelved. Six years later, I became the senior pastor of the church, and the leadership of the church began to pray again in earnest about what do we do with our building facility. One of the first things that came to mind was, I hope nothing, <laughs> because the idea of a building project scares the life out of me. Because, well, where are you gonna come up with money like that? And how would you do something like that? And how would you handle a transition? And how could you ever get everybody to agree on what a new building ought to look like? And how in the world, that just seems like that would be a, a career killer right there. And I remember thinking, I don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> but God's taken me on a journey and the church on a journey from eight years ago to where we are today. And I just want to share with you just some snippets of that, highlights of it. Because what it is, it's highlights of God's grace and power, not just for individuals, but for us as a community. The first thing that comes to mind is the house that God had us build for Josh and Shelley. And as we went through this, I remember God saying, through this story, look, it's about obedience. It's not about understanding everything. That's the first project I can ever recall in Calvary Church's history where we signed up to do something without knowing how much it was gonna cost, where the money was going to come from, or what the plan was. And we did that. Now, I'm sure there were others, but that's the only one I'm familiar with. We did that because we simply were supposed to be obedient. And now, looking back all these years later, I get it. That if we had all of the information, we would have made the wrong decision. That God simply said, look, your job is to obey. You do what I tell you to do and I will work it all out. And, and I've been reminded that God is the one who is leading. And it's our job to follow. 
Second thing that happened is a couple of years after that, we began to look at some changes we might be able to make to our existing facility. Now, they were small, they weren't big, but they were stressful. One of them was a change to the front of the sanctuary. I don't know if you remember, those of you who've been around here for a while, this didn't used to look quite like this. That pointy thing up there, the kind of prow of the ship, however you want to think about that, <laughs> that used to come down a lot further. Came all the way down to the bottom, and in order to have a screen, we had a roll-down screen. It would sort of roll into place. You would shine words on it, and we could sing, and then we'd roll it up out of place when it came up to preach. We also didn't have this same sign out here, and we didn't have a landscaped front area to the church. And both those projects came up, and at both times, both of them were stressful because I was like, look, this is, the, this is the way I think the building's supposed to look. Like, if we change it, that could go very badly. And to mess around with the front that people are looking at all of the time and the front entrance that people are seeing, that was a very stressful sort of thing. But God led us through it. He led us to make the changes here and to make the changes out front. And amazingly, as he did that, I remember realizing, as along with the leadership, you know what? A building is not a church. The people are the church. The buildings do matter. And the ability, what we've changed here has allowed us to actually have a cross on the platform so that when we're here worshiping, we can actually focus on the symbol of Jesus as our Savior. It allows us to do other things during worship with the screen. It's enhanced our worship experience. The changes that have happened out in the front, I remember after we did those, a couple of non-Christian friends came up to me and said, hey, we actually know where your church is now. Like we saw it driving by in the East Beltline. And I remember a couple of people actually saying to me, it looks so much more welcoming, so much warmer. And I realized along with others, you know what? Buildings do matter. God can use what's happening in a building to enhance worship and to invite people who don't yet know him to come be part of what's going on here. Again, the church is the people, but God puts us in a building for a reason and that the building can be helped communicate and enable us to worship. The fourth thing that happened is, is that a year or so after that, we were in John chapter 12, going through a sermon series on the book of John. We got to John chapter 12, and there's a story of Mary pouring out this very expensive jar of perfume, some $50,000 worth of perfume in modern day terms, on Jesus' feet, what appears to be a complete and utter waste, a whole year's wages spent for one moment on his feet. And as I'm studying this, I remember thinking, Lord, okay, this is a really cool story, but how in the world would you apply this today? What do I tell the church about what we're supposed to do? Well, the leadership, the elders of the church came up with this idea. You know what? We ought to give to Jesus an extravagant gift, just like Mary gave to Jesus. We ought to come up with something that we're giving to Jesus, not because it has any utilitarian use or it has any functionality to it, but simply because he's been extravagantly generous to us, and we want to say thank you back to him. The idea that God led us to is that of a prayer garden. And so we took an offering for the prayer garden. And again, at that point, I thought it was just an isolated incident. It turns out it wasn't an isolated incident. It turns out that that prayer garden and the idea of the prayer garden became one of the driving factors in the designs for the building that we have now, that we gave that to the architect and said, well, whatever else happens, we've got to have a prayer garden. And the money that's been raised, which is still waiting for that, waiting longer than I ever thought it should be waiting, waiting there as sort of a first fruits as sort of an initial down payment to be able to say, and you know what I'm excited about? We have money now raised for that piece of it, for the prayer garden piece of it. There's a bigger part that goes with it. But I love the fact that the very first piece of sort of the building remodel 
was the piece that was about prayer. And the piece that says, my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And looking back, God's saying, look, I will lead you through this. I will guide you through this. And that the idea is, is that when you give money to the Lord, you can never outgive God. That you give extravagantly to him because he's been extravagantly generous to us. The fifth thing in this sort of story or narrative happened about a year ago. At some point, we had been praying and praying and praying about this building stuff, and God had begun to sort of coalesce everything in the same direction. And the elders especially had really felt like, okay, the Lord's in this, and then God brought us an architect, an architect who took our idea for a prayer garden and some of the other things that we had wanted and began to put some drawings together, and what he showed us looked fantastic. Now, we had heard from the Lord that really the things that we needed to be focused on especially were this prayer garden, number one, doing something for our children and something for the youth. Those were the three areas of the building that required a remodel or a look at, and we felt like the Lord gave those to us. But along the way, of course, the question is, well, look, on Sunday morning, we got lots of people sitting in lots of strange places. Most people do building projects and build a bigger sanctuary. And so the architect came in and said, we can actually put another sanctuary on your property. We'll put it out the back here. And so he designed a sanctuary that would seat 1,100 additional people during a service on Sunday morning. And so we looked at them, well, we thought, well, that's great. And so we put all of this together and it looked all wonderful. But then, of course, we were reminded, you know what, this is God's decision and this is God's project and not ours. And so as elders of the church, we decided, okay, look, we got to ask God, are these the plans that you want? We like them. They think they're great. They accomplish everything on the list that we would have wanted to accomplish, but are these the plans that you want? And so the elders came up with two signs we were going to ask the Lord to do. One of those signs had to do with parking. The other had to do with sort of the unanimity of the elders about these plans. I was like, well, let's just ask because they're going to come back. Yes, we got the plans. Much to our, at least my surprise, they came back, both signs, very clearly, no. It was sort of a stunning kind of thing. This was last uh, April, May. And God said no. And effectively what he said to us is, look, I don't want you as a church to continue to try to grow larger and larger as a church. It's that sanctuary piece that I'm saying no to. And that, <clears throat> he said to us, there's no way through that parking study there's no way for you to continue to do church the way I want you to do church and get that many people on this piece of property. It won't hold it. And so the elders went back and said, well, God's given us this property. We're supposed to be faithful stewards of it. What is the size sort of changes we can make to the sanctuary that would still allow us to do church the way that we do church? So we went back to the architect who, of course, thought we were crazy and said, and we love the plans, but God doesn't. <laughs> uh, and this actually turned into a great opportunity to engage with him. Okay, okay how, do you, how do you ask the Lord? And so he committed with us to go away and ask the Lord. And he came back with a different set of plans, plans that you're going to see on May 18th if you come. We didn't bring them tonight. We have them. Uh, they're not finalized, finalized, but they're at least they'll give you an idea. It goes back to adding 400 seats to the current sanctuary, about 400 seats to what we currently have, keeping this sanctuary and making some changes to it. After we got those, we realized, okay, look, God's leading this. We don't understand all the things that are going on. We don't understand what's going to happen in the future, but God knows all of those things. Our job is to simply follow. Our job is to obey. And so what we're going to give to you on May 18th are plans that we feel like God has said yes to. 
as opposed to plans that an architect loves or that we like or any of those kinds of things. These are plans that have been prayed over and sought after of the Lord's leading. The final step in this journey was the lunch I had with Josh and Shelley back in December. That Tuesday night, we met together as elder and deacons with these new plans from the architect. And as we went around the room and everybody shared what God had been saying to them about these, it became pretty clear, this is a go. As up, up until the last seven years when it had been like, a, what are you doing, Lord? And a waiting and a confusion. And if you've ever listened for the Lord's voice, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you're kind of wandering around like, Lord, where are we on this? That meeting in December, it felt suddenly like, look, this is, a, this is, actually, this is probably a go. We're moving forward with this. I was incredibly excited when I left the meeting, the elders meeting that Tuesday night. And I thought, well, this is great. But then, of course, worry kicks in like, well, how do you tell the congregation? How in the world do you take the congregation through this journey? How do you communicate what this is about? Because most people think, well, you build a building. about how many more people can you get in and, and how can you do all of these things? How do you communicate that to them? Well, I went home going, okay, Lord, you're still in charge. Next day I walked in and I asked my assistant, who am I going to lunch with today? She said, Josh and Shelley Buck. Now, again, I hadn't heard from them in five years. I had no idea if they were married. I didn't know anything to do with their situation. I walk into their house having no idea what I'm walking into, and I hear that story, albeit in longer form. And I sat there, and while I was, while they were sharing this, I felt like God said in my spirit, look, if I can do that through a house that you built for them, imagine what I can do when you build my house. I look at them and I see the kind of ministry that the marriages they're helping put back together, the ways they're helping other people get their housing needs and car needs and all that. It all happened because God showed them grace. And but he basically told me is, look, this whole building idea, it has nothing really to do with bricks and mortar and has everything to do with my grace. And that the reason why we feel like God wants us to go forward with this is because God is the God of all grace. And he wants to show grace to every single person in this room. And he wants to show grace to people who aren't yet in this room. And he wants to be gracious to us and to lead us forward by his grace. And so you're probably going to hear some stuff, lots of stuff about details and about costs and rooms and all of that stuff. That stuff's all great. But I want you to understand, I finally realize why it is God wants us to do this. And it's because he's the God of all grace. And the way he shows grace is extravagant and beyond our imagination. And he uses that grace to transform us into agents of grace. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for guiding us with your grace. May all those who are here, who are caught in the pit, who are stuck in sin... Wherever they are, Lord, may you show them grace as you have shown us grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.